Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and today I'm excited to have James Wang, who's a channel partner at Creative Ventures, which is a deep tech fund investing in early stage companies. Uh, James was on the core investment team at Bridgewater Associates, founded a health tech startup and worked at Google X. James has done his master's from Georgia Institute of Technology and an MBA from University of California, Berkeley. Welcome to the show, James. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So, uh, you know, um, you, you have an interesting journey, you being part of investments, but what got you into this world of startups? I think in terms of startups, it started from being at uh, Bridgewater at the time. And it's personally, I found it a great experience. It's a great way to, uh, as an early, as an early career thing, get exposed to a lot of well, different people, different ideas. And in terms of global macro, broader macroeconomics, really interesting area. Hedge funds in a way are almost like a math puzzle. So it's, uh, probably the, especially for global macro it is probably the most, the purest way that you can be in business and almost be just working with pure math <laughs> or pure um, uh, concepts and theories, uh, just in terms of th- figuring out how the global economy works, figuring out the interactions and everything. But it's all very ivory tower uh, in the sense that it doesn't really matter what's going on on the ground anywhere. What matters is you understand the interactions of them. So in a way, you're almost like a physicist trying to understand the broader interactions of everything. But one thing I just realized was between seeing, uh, well, during my time there in terms of the Euro crisis and a lot of these different things, I was pretty divorced from what was happening in the world, uh, as we would say, my beta <laughs> to uh, my personal beta to the world was quite low. So just depending on whatever is happening in the world, whatever chaos or whatnot, it's fine so long as we know what's going on and we're betting in the right direction. Unfortunately, friends and family and everyone else that you know and love usually have to be a little more grounded and connected to the world <laughs> and care what's going on inside of it. So yeah. I started to feel a little bit disconnected. I saw a lot of exciting things happening in technology, especially at that particular time period, um, since I started to basically want to leave around uh, 2013 and then basically had left and had gone to business school and sort of has jumped purely into the, like very hard into the startup space by 2015. Even at the 2013 point, we were starting to see a lot of interesting things happening with compute. Interesting things started starting to happen in AI that finally actually came to fruition in 2015, where a lot of the AI benchmarks, especially in computer vision, started to match human capabilities. There was a pretty fundamental shift in the technology landscape at that particular point in time where before around sort of the 2010, 2015 mark, you had a lot of general digitization. So the things that you would recognize in terms of SaaS, even in terms of social networks and everything, taking what we know now, what we used to be on paper, what used to be like phone calls or whatever, and digitizing it to now having technology be able to itself have capabilities matching or beyond what humans can do. So that was an exciting thing that was happening at the time, not just in AI, also in synthetic biology and other areas. And that was really the reason why I looked at it and went, I really want to get involved in technology, uh, both because I want to get closer to the ground in terms of what's going on in the world, but also because there's a fundamental revolution and shift 
at that particular time in what technology was able to do that I think many people didn't quite recognize at the time, but it was already happening and developing then. Hmm. Got it, interesting. And, uh, you know, you, you, you started your career in, in, in nonprofits and, you know, mm-hmm. social impact investing, but you, you left your, your career there. Uh, why is it, you know, difficult to build careers in, in, in nonprofit? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I cared a lot about being able to make an impact and be able to change things. And maybe this is what also sort of brought me dad back down to earth and wanting to get involved in technology and whatnot. <laughs> uh, bad as the reputation for technology is sometimes nowadays, and ter- even for, especially for big tech. But in terms of what I saw in nonprofits was, okay, there's a lot of different opportunities to make an impact, help people. Uh, and honestly, I left the space because I thought that nonprofits wouldn't be able to make as large of an impact, to be completely frank, uh, hmm. because a lot of the ways that nonprofits work, even when they're trying to be sustainable, is pretty non-sustainable, is pretty idiosyncratic, uh, is something that's actually very hard to measure and figure out. And whatever is hard to measure and figure out is hard to actually optimize. So what I saw a lot in the nonprofit space was everyone just decided arbitrarily, this is what we're going to optimize for. Does it actually make as much impact in the world? It's, it's actually kind of hard to say. And I would have actually argued many times, no, especially if we measure it with different objective measures over time. But it's just so hard to actually grasp, understand, and then finally scale. So that's actually the core fundamental eventually that I got to the other end of my career in terms of VC or whatnot. Scale is extremely important. Yeah. If you have a medical device that can change the world, uh, and we have this, we had this case actually in terms of one of our technologies. Uh, it's a portable ultrasound. You know, founders. Uh, one one of the founders had a background in terms of India, and one of the things that they were looking at early on was let's make this portable ultrasound that we can make smaller, cheaper, etc., better uh, than existing ultrasounds. And why don't we take it to developing markets because you know they can then buy it for cheap, they can use it, etc. And we told them no. Well, we suggested no. And it's like, it's not like, yeah, no, no. But we suggested no. Why? Well, because it's a semiconductor-based technology for one. So yeah. that means its marginal cost goes to zero over time. So what you're doing is you're actually having the most expensive units and selling it to the developing markets first, expensive for you, developing yeah. markets first. But you're also creating a perception, which warranted or not, if you're selling those products that are low quality or low price, quote unquote, to these developing markets, you might not actually get the intellectual leadership in terms of developed markets to actually buy into it. And then you can't go the other way versus if you become extremely well adopted, even charge more in developed markets because you're able to compete well within those markets. You can then take that cost curve, learning curve, come down in terms of semiconductors, have your marginal cost for the semiconductors be near zero, and basically scale infinitely in terms of developing markets. At the end of the day, if you go in the direction that seems less impacty to start with and more profit maximizing in order to scale, you can have a far larger impact ultimately than you would be able to the other way around. Mm, mm, got it, got it. And uh... Uh, you, you know, you, you talked about health tech uh, companies. You, you've also founded Linus, uh, which mm-hmm. is a women's health tech startup. Yes. Uh, you know, how, did, how did that begin? Uh, that was partially just because uh, within 
Berkeley within some of the different people that I had met there, including Anna, who is an engineer at Amazon Lab 126, uh, Liz, who's my wife, actually, <laughs> uh, in terms of looking at the particular space, just like any, just like many other spaces, just in terms of health technologies, uh, women's health, women's wellness is actually one that has quite little, doesn't have that much data around it, doesn't actually have that much good uh, research around it, and is actually pretty hard to quantify in terms of many of the things there. So there's been more of a movement over time, especially the development of femtech and everything else that came later and specialized funds that actually targeted. But at that particular time, we were also seeing an opportunity where, look, we can actually integrate a lot of these cheaper sensor technologies. We can integrate a lot of these different technologies in terms of AI and whatnot, and start to bring more insights that in an area that actually has a lot of low hanging fruit. So that was one of the big concepts in terms of for Linus at the time. It actually segs again quite well into many of the other technologies that for creative ventures we're investing in today. There's a lot of different areas that are pretty hard to measure that now with new technologies, you actually open up and are able to go after them. So Echo Devices was one of the examples I mentioned. Again, shrinking down uh, portable, uh, old traditional ultrasound array into just semiconductors, making it far cheaper, easier, more accessible. Or say in terms of a C-Light, another one of our technologies, which basically uses uh, an ophthalmology laser to be able to diagnose neurological disease. So a lot of these different technologies are trying to actually come into the market using AI, using cheaper sensors, and are able to use that essentially to be able to create new capabilities and provide better care for people. Anyway, so uh, that's long sort of segue in terms of that. But yeah, uh, that's sort of how part of that journey came through. Got it, got it. Interesting. And, uh, you know, uh... Uh, we were discussing about about deep tech, and you know, uh, I've recently you know fallen into into deep tech sector. Uh, I, I was in, interested to understand, you know, how how do how do you how do you uh, how does a VC evaluate uh, deep tech companies uh, from you know other software companies where you, you know there's a different scale? Uh, if, if you can explain more more on that, how does Creative uh, Venture Capital looks into it? Yeah. So there's an interesting difference for deep tech versus a software startup is at the end of the day for a software startup, many VCs, and I would agree with them, by the way, would argue that what's paramount is the team. So at the end of the day, if you have a software startup, you're going after a market or whatnot, your hypotheses could change quite a bit. Hmm. You could pivot quite a bit in terms of different markets. Even companies that are technology enabled and have a foot in the door in physical technology, say Netflix, they changed very much in their business model every time, right? In terms of very famously from DVD mailing to streaming, but there's a through line in terms of it. And there's a capability of a smart, well, a smart founder to a smart founding team to keep pivoting and figure out the right way to actually address that market. That doesn't work in deep tech. Because if you caricature a software startup, and I know it's a caricature, but let's just work with me here. You can rewrite your code over the weekend. Yep. You can redeploy it on your cloud, on your, you know, your cloud host. And then suddenly you can change your Google, anal uh, your Google AdWords. And guess what? Next week, you're in a new market. That doesn't work for robotics. <laughs> that doesn't work for synthetic biology. Uh, that doesn't work for different healthcare technologies. A lot of these different areas, you just need to have the right target to begin with. Mm 
So the thing that we say is like, what you do, not only do you need a stellar team, you need to actually know very specifically where are we actually going at? What are we actually going after? And how are we actually tackling this market? The technology, and this is the funny thing, we're a deep tech firm. You'd think that, you know, we're technology geeks and whatnot. I mean, yeah, a lot of us in terms of creative ventures have PhDs, but the technology is just the tool. The technology is just the thing that you use. I care as little about the technology. Well, I care a little more, but I care as little about the technology as you use as a software VC cares about what programming language you're using to create your tech stack. I care about your market and the application. And with this technology, is it something new that's being enabled? And are you actually tackling this market correctly? Since it's very easy to go after a specific market, do a certain way, do product development in a certain way, and be stuck. Okay. Because you've gone through, you've burned through all this cash and time, and now you don't have enough time to pivot. Mm -hmm. So if you're, say, a LiDAR company who went after a market that's not automotive, cannot go towards automotive, and you specifically stayed in, say, like robotics or something, you might actually be kind of screwed because your big market is over here. You optimize for this market. You can't go from here to here. If you're a software startup, you change a few things, you can make that work. But if you're a hardware startup or something that has a foot, or not just a foot, but is almost entirely in the physical world, it's very hard to just bridge that without basically, we just need to found a new company. Mm, got it. Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of times I've seen that in deep tech, you know, uh, uh, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of money has been spent on product development with no traction. Um, mm -hmm. but, but do you think, you know, uh, uh, a deep tech company should have some traction even at a, you know, pre-seed or seed stage, uh, you know, before they look at pivoting to another, you know, uh, will yes. be possible for it to pivot, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the yes is the short answer and it should have a lot of traction and the reason is okay. because if you are a deep tech company you would want your product to already be useful again for the same reason and the same dynamic you need your product to be useful immediately i see a lot of deep tech companies whose thesis is basically look we're going to develop this technology. We're going to go after this market that we know is too small and not interesting or whatnot. But, you know, we're going to learn so much and develop so much that eventually we'll be able to go after this much larger market. This traction is so little, but guess what? Like, we're, it's just going to enable it. And the reality is we've never really seen that work. Like, we've very rarely seen that ever work. And when it does, it's kind of by accident. Uh, for the most part, you need to be in a industry that is so desperate for your solution that they're willing to pay you up front, not have the product for say like six months and then get it six months later and be running with it and using it and using it into the ground. Uh, mm -hmm. That is how critical your target market should be. Right. And that is a case that we see a lot. So for example, in labor automation, uh, a lot of our companies in this particular space we're, by the way, not taking away jobs. We're actually taking away a lot of job openings. It's the companies are desperate for a solution. The uh, existing employees are being worked into the ground. And there needs to be something in terms of tools, automation, to be able to help bridge that gap. And we're seeing a lot of interest from different, say, food services, say, hospitality, say, cleaning and labor, et cetera, to actually go in that direction and be able to be willing to pay a lot just because the it's such a crisis right now in terms of labor. So 
that's the kind of problem that you want to go after. And you want to find a specific industry that is desperate to solve that problem. Today, I have an interesting stat for you. Did you know that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14-day free trial. Interesting. Uh, you know, you talked about uh, labor shortages. You know, uh, Obviously, I'm, I want to talk about uh chat gpt and open ai obviously but, <laughs> uh, but but uh, but uh, but do you think you know chat gpt is like like a google killer and you you know what what uh, with microsoft investing a lot into, uh, mm-hmm. into you know ai what, what are the implications for for automation uh going forward you know you uh do you think automation and service jobs and will, will create a, a shortage for for jobs uh uh, or job opportunities going forward? Yeah. So at what we're seeing in empirically, just in terms of our companies, no, not a shortage uh, because right now there already is a shortage. So if there already is a shortage and you're plugging in automation, what you're doing is you're actually filling in the shortage and you're actually enabling, say, let me just give a quick example say for a restaurant, let's right. not even worry about the specific technology here, but say for a restaurant, you have workers working there. There are, understaffed. They can't keep up with lunch rush. And then afterwards, they're sort of sitting around or whatnot. The business has extremely thin margins. You might argue, well, you know, you can't, and they can't hire anyone because no one's like everyone's leaving or et cetera. Well, just pay more. Well, the business doesn't have the margins to pay more. Where are they going to find the thing to pay? Well, just raise prices. Well, if they raise prices then customers will go elsewhere and then they'll have even less margins and they'll go out of business. They they're stuck. They have these workers, you can't pay them enough. No one's happy. Now you add an automation tool. Suddenly each worker is 10 times, say, more productive or whatnot. And you know, the lot more and the margin expands substantially for the business. Suddenly the business owner is going to be happy to take some of that and retain workers to, if nothing else, consider them greedy, consider them whatever you want to consider. But they'll want to pay them more just to take away the headache of having the constant turnover in terms of workers. So suddenly that automation actually is able to create more, create better jobs, higher paying jobs for workers. When people say that automation is going to take away jobs, it's the same thing in my opinion as saying like, you know what, now that we've innovated and created shovels, construction workers will just be out of a job. (laughs) They can't, uh, you know, no one will want like construction workers. Well, no, not really. It's like, okay, there's still certain things, you know, you're going to have human supervisors, whatever it is. But because you actually have more automation, more productivity, you're suddenly able to have higher margins and pay more. So that's what we're actually going for in terms of a lot of these different areas. Now, chat GPT and whatnot, I can also talk about just framework wise and sort of the short answer there is there's a distinction between knowledge workers and like and labor just in terms of you know hands-on like labor knowledge workers have always been easier to automate in some sort of way everything they do is on the computer (laughs) everything they do is non-physical the computer and or ai can learn off of literally every single keystroke and action the person is doing it was always easier to try to automate that with ai trying to like get a machine to manipulate something in some sort of really sensitive and eat like a way that's super intuitive for even the lowest trained human 
that that's super hard. It's actually super easy to get ChatGPT to comparatively to get ChatGPT to spit out a bunch of things that look like a programmer wrote it. So knowledge workers have always been easier to try to replace. But in reality, what we usually see is similar actually to the labor side. You supplement people. So in terms of artists or whatnot, maybe digital art will start to use chat. Digital artists will start to use ChatGPT or not ChatGPT, but MidJourney or some of these other generative art tools to create because that was a big thing. It's like, oh, artists will be out of business. Like, well, maybe they'll use that to either create inspiration or start an art piece and then refine it and create their own creations from it. It's a tool. It's right. like, is it that different than a Photoshop filter? Same thing in terms of labor. It's like, at the end of the day, you're not going to throw out all your labor. You're going to change the nature of your labor. And at this point, in terms of people, it's a, there's an interesting Gallup poll, actually. And stop me if this is going too much of a tangent, but there's an interesting Gallup poll where out of you know billions of people, less than 10% of people actually have jobs that they're happy with. Yeah. It's a pretty big gap in terms of like jobs, like your <laughs> jobs, jobs that people want. Yeah. Uh, automation, in our opinion, in terms of seeing the reality of it, can help bridge that gap where we get people the jobs they want. We're not just trying to throw people bodies into positions. Like no one's happy in that case. So mm. I'll stop there in terms yeah. of my. Interesting, uh, uh, you know, if AI can solve the problem because. Uh, I mean, in US, it's mentioned that eighty percent of people are looking for new jobs uh, mm -hmm. in two thousand twenty-three and uh, in the in the middle of recession. So it's it's crazy, you know, uh, if AI can bridge that gap. But um, I, I want to talk about you know uh, the aging populations around the world, mm -hmm. uh, yep. especially uh, you know I, I'm from India. We don't have that aging problem right now, but well, we have that problem in China, and I think India has. Uh, surpass China to become the most populous country. We'll, we'll get to yes. know in, in the next couple of years. But but what would be the demographic change, in, especially in developed countries where and, and countries like China, where you'll have aging population in the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, that is a that is the fundamental crunch point that we're seeing for a lot of these different countries. It's like it for the world, actually, because like you're saying, it's India ha is an interesting case. There are certain countries in terms of Africa that are interesting cases that don't necessarily follow this pattern. But for the most part, the entire world is aging, even in, say, China, Indonesia, like different uh, what you would consider developing countries that, OK, should be young and grow. No, no, they're aging. <laughs> uh, they're starting to they're not as bad as, say, Europe or whatnot, but or Japan, but they're aging. So what that hap what happens is one, you have this labor shortage. Like there's a reason why we everyone's talking about labor shortages right now. And that's because we are seeing the demographic crunch. It's it's simple like ratios, right? If you think about it, more old people, fewer young people, that's yeah. going to create issues in terms of manual labor. Because <laughs> suddenly you have fewer people to do it relative to the population that you have. That's just simple ratios in terms of it, right? But there's another thing too, right? It's just in terms of healthcare. We also are having big crunches in terms of healthcare because suddenly our spending per GDP uh, per GDP capita is going up in every single country, basically. And that's because it just costs more and more to support a larger and larger aging population. Now, you might argue they might be unhealthy or other stuff, you know, junk food, other things, fine, whatever. But the fundamental thing is they're all aging. Forget about if they're eating the healthiest thing in the world. They're still aging. It's still going to yeah. cost more. So yeah. no matter what, you have these two huge forces hitting the world at the same time for the same reason. And in our opinion, that's actually one of the biggest trends next to, say, climate change that are impacting the world and are going to be big challenges for countries all around the world.
got it but, but you know people are living longer do you think uh, you know the uh, earlier you know people used to retire at 65 do you think people are going mm-hmm. to work even longer you know into the 70s mhm i mean for some people they will and in certain cases uh, just financially speaking a lot of countries will probably change retirement ages uh, just to keep their system solvent so that's probably coming but even so if you you're now 65 versus 70 or 75 or what not you're still not working a bunch of manual labor jobs right you're still probably unhealthier than yeah. say like a 20 30 40 year old require you still require more um in terms of healthcare services at least for that fundamental imbalance in terms of both of these sides that doesn't specifically solve it maybe you'll be able to create a little bit more output in the economy because of these other things but the ov- the drag from the drag from it is so large that will be a marginal change relative to the general drag for both the labor productivity issue and the issue in terms of healthcare costs mm. got it and uh, you talked about climate change it's it's interesting you know i i i i started at a, at a university here in europe and uh and europe done a much better job than you know asia or other than other continents where uh, there's a lot of focus on on climate change um mm. do you think you know startup founders should should care more about you know uh the macro environment and the, and the climate change uh, especially you know since I, i think europe has taken uh, uh especially france and you know uk uh, they are forerunners when it comes to uh, uh climate change uh, uh startups uh, what are, what are your your views on that I mean there are definitely opportunities in it. It's definitely a huge area that needs work in terms of it, right? If you want to make an impact in the world, we start talking about nonprofits, right? If you want to make an impact in the world, climate change is definitely a big one to go after. But there's a way to go after it, right? Just like we talked about uh, in terms of deep tech where it's like you want to go after something that actually has a burning problem right now. Well, for climate change, we see a lot of people going after these different things where it's like, well, once there is carbon, there's global carbon pricing this business model will just work <laughs> i mean we've been talking about potentially having global carbon pricing every 10 years every 10 years ago uh and basically throughout this period since we actually started to talk about climate change as an issue right it hasn't specifically happened it's happened in very small forms what not it's not really a thing still but in terms of if you actually see uh for the UN's like all the different climate targets and what not what actually made the biggest difference in terms of global warming it was the change in renewables mm. it wasn't because governments suddenly started pushing renewables a huge amount they subsidized it which definitely was helpful but it was because there was a big push in terms of renewables where the technology came up and admittedly if you talk about it because china started producing a lot of solar panels and stuff and that brought the cost way down and when but the technology advanced and suddenly renewables were competitive with fossil fuels that's what made the big change and that's what actually started to push a lot of it was technology change and just in terms of how we see the future developing it's the same thing it's like it'd be nice if policymakers all got together all globally co- coordinated etc I think sometimes you have to confront reality and realize that if it hasn't happened <laughs> in all of this time it might not actually happen especially not fast enough you would actually you would have to look towards the expectation of what actually worked last time well it was the development of technology same thing here 
there's a lot of opportunity in say storage. So uh, renewables being cheap is great. They're just kind of intermittent. So the sun doesn't always shine. Wind doesn't always blow. I guess geothermal stays pretty constant, but at least for the two other big ones, uh, those things don't always generate power. So or generate create energy. So how do you actually store that over time? So there's a lot of opportunity in say stationary batteries, other things to bridge that gap. But yes, there's a lot of opportunities today in terms of critical problems in climate change that you can address right now. That's not trying to predict something that will happen or not in the future. Mm, mm, got it. And uh, especially when it, when it comes to uh, creative ventures, you know, you invest into early stage startups. Um, how, how do you how do you analyze the, the question and think through uh, when you meet founders and you're asking, you know, what needs to come true for this business to make it a great business? Uh, or what, what are some of the questions that you think through? So I would flip that because uh, in our opinion, uh, you can ask the questions, but you should already have the answers going into it because for us, it's too easy <laughs> for, you, for someone to be charmed by a charismatic founder who lays out an extremely hard problem that's a huge market that's so hard to solve and no one else has solved it. But you know, coincidentally, the person sitting in front of you with this slide deck today, right now, has the perfect solution to solve this problem. It's just far too easy to fall in love in terms of that and get caught by a great pitch. Mm. You need to go in with your own ideas beforehand. (laughs) You have to have done your homework and know, okay, these are the types of markets that actually work in terms of this. These are the type of enabling technologies, or these are the characteristics of the enabling technologies that you would need to have to actually open up these markets. And you have to go in beforehand with that and be armed with that to be able to ask one, one intelligent questions about the technology that you and person and business that you see in front of you, uh, but also not just be captured by fancy pitches. So mm-hmm. that's our opinion on how you how a VC should be approaching it. And plus, and this is a pet peeve of mine. I've heard a lot of VCs say, you know, I meet so many brilliant founders. I learn so much from them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, that's great and all. And I, do learn things from different founders and whatnot. It's great. And, you know, you debate and have interesting insights. But if the founder who also needs to deal with creating the business, hiring, uh, managing the business, dealing with founder dynamics, raising money, and doing all of these other things and functions knows less about the specific market investment opportunities, investment path than you, the professional who specializes only in that. <laughs> I would say there's a problem. (laughs) So in terms of the relationship value between like the two of you, I would say that, yeah, uh, the VC should probably be bringing a little bit more to the table. So our opinion is we should know more actually in terms of the market dynamics, industry dynamics, and funding dynamics than the founder who has a lot of other things to deal with. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Got interesting. And uh, you know, you know, I have the uh, fortune of you know working with some some brilliant founders. Uh, I was very early into you know as a, uh, before the call I, was, I mentioned I was very early into a company called OU Rooms, which was led by Ritesh, mm-hmm. who was a Thiel fellow. Uh, and uh, you know I 
it was quite interesting because uh, he he uh, he was part of the Thiel Fellowship and he came in so early. And he got backed by SoftBank and Sequoia and all those companies, uh, all the, all those VCs. But uh, there was a recent article from Hunter Walk from uh, who who is uh, a VC who said some some of the best founders are are difficult people. Uh, and you know how do you do a reference check for for entrepreneurs who can be difficult but can make you know great great products uh, how do you how do you judge that you know this is um, this might be a difficult founder but his genius he, he's brilliant well it depends on what the business needs right yeah. uh, so in certain businesses say so there i'd say there's nuance there so if the business, what the business needs is say a front person who you have an a person has great vision, has recruited a great engineering team. Engineering team is amazing going after this problem. They have the best solution, blah, 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 blah. All you need is a founder who can paint an amazing picture of the future and raise a ton of money in order to actually fund that engine. Right. That fun, that founder can be as difficult as you want, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, ideally, it's a little annoying to work with, but that founder can be as difficult interpersonally as that founder wants to be because the goal and the need of the business is basically to have someone who's a great storyteller that can keep money flowing into the engine that creates the value. Right. So that's a particular founder archetype that we see a lot in terms of certain types of businesses. But if you, what you need is a business that actually you need to be able to work well with, say, different large entities, corporates out there who are might be kind of slow moving or potentially like difficult to work with, say, if you're working again in that battery space and you're dealing with large utilities and governments and government regulators and whatnot, you might need a different founder archetype. Now, in terms of interpersonally, do we need the person to be the most eloquent, most interesting, someone you'd sit down and have a beer with? <laughs> Yeah. No, not necessarily, but you do need you do need to look at the business and see what the is most critical for the business. For us, because we are investing in deep tech, a lot of the founders are actually PhDs who have never founded businesses before. They're the only ones who can found the business because they're the only ones in the world who spent seven years working on this specific technology or whatnot. It's like, yeah, it'd be great if you could find another CEO and whatnot. But in reality, for the business at that stage, usually it's still the founder. And maybe the founder will either grow into it or transition out or whatnot, but it's that founder. So if we're looking at that particular perspective, then that founder has to do it. But what qualities of that founder are necessary in order to actually make this business succeed or what other puzzle pieces that we bring in to fill in for the gaps for this founder. So again, I'd say there's nuance. It's like, I think for a lot of these generalist VCs, there's a certain archetype that they invest in because of the certain types of business that they have, the types of business that they have need. And he has other great qualities and whatnot, but just, to be frank in terms of like one of his greatest quality for Elon Musk is as a front man in terms yeah. of being able to create publicity and bring in money Yeah. Uh, for some of these businesses. That's what they need. And yeah, yeah. interpersonally, they might be weird, but that's what they need. And that's what will drive success. Got mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, yeah, I, I was wondering how does creative ventures uh, engage in outcome uh, scenario planning when they're looking at making investments? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with really having a good understanding of what, again, what markets are you going after and what are the boundaries of it? So uh, BCG and Hello Tomorrow actually did a pretty interesting study 
if you were to guess whether software startups or deep tech startups, like among these two, which one takes less money and takes less time to exit? Uh, which one would you guess? Like, I think most people would guess software startup, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. software, you just write it, you just go, no, no, as it turns out, especially for a modern software startup, you can just keep going, keep burning marketing dollars and keep trying to do user acquisition and just go off into the sunset and keep going and going and going. Whereas deep tech startups actually take less time and less money usually. But what this chart that they have doesn't capture is usually these deep tech startups are also more finite. Whereas if you have a Google, you have a Facebook, you even have a Salesforce or whatnot, you just infinitely go on and keep burning marketing dollars and trying to grab more and more and more of a very, very, very potentially large market. For a deep tech startup, uh, say in medical devices, in medical diagnostics, you get to a certain point, you go through FTA, you get maybe some other regulatory clearances, you've shown impact in terms of this, and you've expanded into different clinics and are used clinically now. You probably are looking to sell to a large medical device company because they literally have a global footprint that they've already built of a sales force to push this out to every single corner of the world. There's no point in you sitting around and basically trying to build that. At that point, you've hit an end goal, you've succeeded, and now you're just basically negotiating to exit at that point. For deep tech startups, that's the thing that you always have to keep in mind. They usually have a much more constrained, finite, but still large, but still constrained and finite and known end point. And you have to be aware of that just in terms of going out. And in a way that makes our outcome planning easier is <laughs> we don't have to sit around and go, well, this could grow infinitely. Uh, yeah. So who knows? Uh, but for that, you have to be disciplined in looking at and understanding that's where this business is going. Got it. Interesting. And uh, again, I, I wanted to understand how do you, how do you approach uh, startups, especially, you know, uh, since you look at uh, uh, US-based uh, early-stage startups, how do, you, uh, how do you find those founders and startups? We tend to be pretty enmeshed in both uh, academic, government funding, different startup challenges, different accelerators. We're sort of in a lot of different places that the deep tech, because, because we're one of the earliest to the scene, uh, we tend to be in a lot of the places that these startups are around and we're known within those particular spaces. So we end up seeing quite a bit pretty early on for us. So for example, we're pretty enmeshed in Stanford and Berkeley ecosystems in terms of Bay Area, which we're, where we're based. But academ academia is a pretty small and tight-knit community. So say in terms of different robotics and AI departments, different uh, microbiology departments, et cetera, it's like, it's all pretty well connected in terms of it. And people also see that we've done investments in other interesting companies in the space uh, very early on for many of these different founders. So we actually have a nice uh, problem <laughs> nowadays of having a lot of inbound. And we try to actually allow ourselves to take a lot of cold inbound too, because you never know from where you're going to get another great startup. Uh, so that's the sort of how we end up approaching it uh, because of our specialization, because of being in a lot of these right places, uh, we end up seeing and being within the flow for a lot of these deep tech startups very early on. Uh, interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, we uh, uh, obviously I want to talk about uh, the impending recession and a lot, of, a lot of people are worried about the jobs. There have been a lot of uh, jobs which have been lost in big companies like, like uh, you know, uh, the Googles uh, uh, and, uh, and other companies. 
what what advice would you give to founders who are looking to raise uh, funds in 2023 especially for you know deep tech com- startups yeah i think for deep tech companies in particular again it's like having a differentiated technology alone is not enough uh, in general, you're going to have to understand what market you're after actually going after. Even if you're charismatic enough to raise a bunch of money off of just a pure vision of look how big this technology is, you're going to fail very quickly after if you don't have a good sense of here's how I'm going to execute against that. If you yourself cannot figure that out because you don't have the background or whatnot, find someone who can help you who can, uh, even just advisors or whatnot, and build out that at least initial hypothesis of what direction you have to go. And then you can get market research. You can have like talk to different folks and figure that out. But that's an important first step that I think a lot of starting founders, especially ones who are drawn to deep tech don't do. Uh, because again, many folks who enter the market are tend to be PhDs or more technical folks. Yeah. Uh, it's not usually a MBA who leaves and goes, you know what? I want to make a synthetic biology startup that does advanced materials in this thing or whatever. <laughs> Right, right. Got it. Interesting. And again, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Uh, I'd say probably in terms of, there are some negotiation books that I think are interesting, but I think one of the most interesting books that I've read that's sort of a classic is Influence by Cialdini. Um, it's a psychology book. It's about influencing people. And although that kind of sounds weird or maybe bad. It's also just an exercise in empathy and being able to look at things from other people's perspective. Uh, I think a lot of folks, especially within the tech ecosystem, uh, could definitely stand to think a little bit more about that and be able to communicate more effectively just in terms of thinking about how they present everything. Uh, since at the end of the day, talking and communication is about <laughs> communicating and having the other person understand what you're saying. So having a good framework for that is useful. Got interesting. We'll put that in the show notes. And, um, you know, if you could go back in time when you started uh, your career in investing and you started with creative ventures, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Uh, I think in terms of this is actually a piece of advice that I also give to folks who um, because I've lectured in different like guest lectured at different things and whatnot. And, you know, a lot of young folks have asked like, oh, what are, what's what's the best, best way to like form my path in this or that or whatever it is. And for me, I kind of fell into creative ventures a little bit accidentally. And just in terms of, I think most VCs do, most people don't go into tech looking to do VC, but I just say uh, just in terms of a lot of the early, like, okay, let's figure out this, figure out that. I'd say similar to what I say to young folks who say, all I need to start my startup is go to graduate school, do this, work at this big tech company, and then have like three years as an executive at this thing or that. No, 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 no. (laughs) Don't wait. Uh, The more you put conditions on yourself in terms of what you're willing to do or not at a particular point in time, the less experience that you're going to get in the relevant area that you're looking at. And the more you might end up just regretting having spent 10 years doing something else completely different, trying to prepare for something. Uh, And for me and for us and whatnot, there are certain areas that we knew we probably actually had a pretty good idea how to invest in that we had stayed a little bit away from because we were thinking, well, you know, technically speaking, we don't all have PhDs in this area or whatnot Um, that we do in other areas, but we don't in this area. Maybe we should hesitate a little. And I think over time we found, no, actually, if you have good insight, good interdisciplinary understanding and thought process towards that, and you actually apply that and go for it, 
you can have a huge impact and start to learn and be able to have that expertise much, much sooner than if you just sit around and wait and hope to gain that in other ways. Got it. And, and uh, you know, Rafael, what's your favorite online tools example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Uh, so I think for me personally, uh, I get so many emails. I really like uh, Superhuman, which is an email well, client yeah. that you pay yeah. quite a bit more for a month. <laughs> Actually, I guess not that much per month, depending on how it is. But uh, Gmail used to be very fast. I used to be one of those Gmail power users. It got very slow. So Superhuman is now sort of the thing that fills in for that and is very productive because I get far too many emails every day. So... <laughs> We'll, we'll put that uh, in the show notes. We had Vivek Sudeira, who's the, who's the founder of Superhuman on the show. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, James, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Creative Ventures? Yeah. So again, we actually take cold pitches and whatnot. Uh, that's at invest at creativeventures.vc. We do review them. Sometimes it does take us a while to get through because... We do get a lot of emails, uh, but uh, we do review all of those. Always happy to also take, uh, if you're if folks are in the Bay Area, especially in terms of Berkeley and whatnot, uh, in that general area, I've done different talks, lectures, things. I've worked in a lot of the different accelerators and, again, given talks and stuff there. Always happy to you know talk to folks, give advice, talk about things, just hang out. So, yeah. Uh, just look forward to that. And as I said, invest at creativeventures.vc. I'm also on Twitter as a James uh, Wang. So just like, because my name is very common. So a James Wang, just one of them. Uh, so yeah, I'm there as well uh, for as long as Twitter exists currently. We'll see going forward. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, James, thank you so much for taking your time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.